This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, trading with negative futures. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? Good, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm excellent. This is our third week of Zooming at this podcast. So, again, um, we haven't had any major feedback from anybody saying we've done a terrible job thus far. So I'm going to assume that means we're doing well. I'll let someone else decide otherwise. Uh, but in the meantime, mate, uh, we're going to kick on with this week's podcast. There is, as always, plenty in the news. Look, I don't know where to start this week. So I guess the first thing, let's start with the market. The market's down over the last couple of days. We're recording this on Thursday morning as we are these days. And maybe we might get a positive day today. But the recovery maybe is stumbling. As I inferred at the beginning, the oil price, unlike our podcast, is now negative, at least the futures of one particular oil. And we'll talk about that and what it means, both why and what it means for the economy. We'll talk about the great retail rental rumble. I worked hard for those three R's, Doc. So unlike reading, writing, and arithmetic, I've gone the great retail rental rumble. We'll talk about whether Afterpay is going to come under some pressure to give its customers a bit of a break. And as always, we'll dip into the Motley Fool mailbag. What do you reckon, mate? I think I'm going to just buy some drums of oil. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The stock market recovery. We've had a funny old time in the stock market recently. Uh, we had big falls, big recoveries. We're back kind of now into, if not big falls, the market kind of had a tough old week at the beginning of this particular week. Um, it's hard to kind of try and work out which way things are actually heading, right? The, the, is there a recovery? Is there not a recovery? Is this the, the old next leg down to use the horrible, I hate the jargon our industry, I've got to say, mate. Like sometimes jargon is really descriptive and prescriptive. Other times it feels mm-hmm. like just jargon for the sake of it. It's just a little bit... A little bit bizarre. Uh, anyway, so what, you know, is that going to happen next? Who knows? So here's, here's the numbers, mate. The ASX fell 37% between the 20th mm-hmm. of February and the 23rd of March. That's a pretty tough month. But then mm-hmm. the ASX rose 21% between March 23 and April 14. Then since then, and we're talking now best part of nine, eight days when I wrote that, uh, now the ASX is down 5.5%. So this feels like a market to me that either is rationally responding to new information or in my, my perception, my view, it's just kind of literally flipping and flopping backwards and forwards, not really sure what the heck is going on. What do you say? Well, you know, that's interesting. One of the things I was going to say is that let's assume that the market high was 100 points, right? Yep. And then from 100 points, we fell 40, 40%. So we're now at 60 points. Yes. And even if you rise from 60 points, 20%, Yes. You are really up to 72 points, which means you're still Correct. down 28 points. So, I mean, effectively, we're still down. And, and I think that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And, you know, like, I, I expect the market to bounce around, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, because, I mean, maybe the initial reaction was too hard, right? We don't know. Um, has things, you know, we have more information of what's going on. We have some information of, you know, how things might shape up. Um, we have increasingly more uh, information about all sorts of stimulus being given, right? So, you know, when there's a stimulus information that comes in, the market is happy. Uh, when there's some bad news that comes in, the market is unhappy. And some of that seems pretty logical. And, you know, the market is thinking in, in relatively short-term terms, right? And mm-hmm. it's thinking what's going to happen in the next few months. And I think it's just moving around with that uh, information, right? So, I mean... Would we normally expect, I wouldn't expect that the market would recover quickly, mm. uh, but I would expect it to bounce around a fair bit uh, because of, you know, just the uncertainty, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. I think it's baked in all the bad news, all the big bad news at one go, right? By dropping very fast, very quickly. Mm. And now it's trying to process um, all sorts of other information, like all of us are doing, right? You know, we're getting, we're hearing from companies. Some companies are doing it hard. Some companies are actually managing fine. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, what is the market going to do in the intermediate? I don't know. If I had to make a guess, it's going to bounce around. It would be my guess. Uh, in, 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 the, in the intermediate, in which direction it's going to bounce on a given day, it's hard to know. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, um, I, I feel like, yeah, like, Again, like anybody looking for discounts, I think now is a great time still to look for discounts, largely because of the fact that I said, right, you won't go from 100 to 60, 60 to let's say you want a 72, you're still like, you know, 28 points down, right, uh, right. which is like 30, 30% down. So there's a, there's a fair bit 
like we're a fair bit down from the highs. And that's important mm-hmm. to remember. It doesn't mean that we're going to be hitting new highs. It also doesn't mean that we'll be hitting new lows, right? Um, we, just because the market is bouncing around, we can't really predict what the next step is going to be. But, you know, I'm just basically predicting it's going to bounce around. And, and the bounce around could, could, you know, it could trend downwards, it could trend upwards, it could stay flat. <laughs> the American banker who gave his name to the investment bank, JP Morgan, was John Pierpoint Morgan. And he was asked famously to give a forecast on the market. And his three-word answer is one that's been remembered through the ages, which is, it will fluctuate. <laughs> and that's about, I think, the best, the best forecast I think you can provide. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. But I'm going to editorialise very briefly, or at least I'm, I'm going to read something, which we don't do very often here. Um, I wanted to share with our listeners Warren Buffett's parable about Mr. Market. So if you'll indulge me, Doc, I'm just going to read that. Everyone knows I love Warren Buffett. Uh, you don't love him quite as much as I do. But, uh, but I think this parable is probably his most famous story, I think. Is that, is that fair to say? Um, and yep. so I'm, going to, I'm just going to read this out just, just for our listeners who are maybe a new word to investing or, frankly, who can do with the reminder. So this is from Warren Buffett's 1987 letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. I wasn't a shareholder then, unfortunately, or I'd be much richer and probably on a, on a Bahamian island, but I'm not, so I'm not. Uh, let's, let's go with, it's only a couple of paragraphs, so let me, let me just read it. He says, even though the businesses that the two of you, sorry, let me start again. Yeah, so he's talking about Mr. Market, he's talking about you and Mr. Market. Even though the businesses that the two of you own may have economic characteristics that are stable, Mr. Market's quotations will be anything but. For, sad to say, the poor fellow has incurable emotional problems. At times, he feels euphoric and can only see the favorable factors affecting the business. When in that mood, he names a very high spy sell price because he fears you will snap up his interest and rob him of imminent gains. At other times, he is depressed and can see nothing but trouble ahead for both the business and the world. On these occasions, he will name a very low price since he is terrified you will unload your interest on him. Mr. Market has another endearing characteristic. He doesn't mind being ignored. If his quotation is uninteresting to you today, he'll be back with a new one tomorrow. Transactions are strictly at your option. Under these conditions, the more manic depressive his behavior, the better for you. But like Cinderella at the ball, you must heed one warning or everything will turn into pumpkins and mice. Mr. Market is there to serve you, not to guide you. It is his pocketbook, not his wisdom, that you will find useful. If he shows up someday in a particularly foolish mood, you are free to either ignore him or to take advantage of him. But it will be disastrous if you fall under his influence. Indeed, if you aren't certain you understand and can value your business far better than Mr. Market, you don't belong in the game. As they say in poker, if you've been in the game 30 minutes and you don't know who the patsy is, you're the patsy. And I just love that because it's a really stark reminder that looking at the daily news and trying to discern what the market is telling you or what the market knows is, or is, you know, the market's often right, but not always. And that's Buffett's point, right? You can simply ignore the market whenever you want. And the fact that shares were down 37, up 21, down five and a half. And as you say, mate, from different bases. So those numbers aren't strictly comparable, but that very idea that no one really knows is if nothing else brought in a stark relief during this pandemic. I, I told you, yeah. Warren Buffett is, is a great educator in that sense, right? I mean, he, he makes the, the hard stuff very simple. And I actually love that, Mr. Market parable. You know, I'm going to do a little uh, um, a tangent here. You mentioned JP Morgan. Okay. I don't know how many people know this, uh, but, uh, you know, JP Morgan had uh, actually financed a company called the International Merchantile Corporation um, right. back in the day. That was the same company that actually financed another company which created the, uh, the RMS Titanic. And <laughs> I believe... You know, I actually watched this in a documentary, and and I believe he was actually set to sail on uh, uh, the Titanic, but at the last minute, and he was one of the two which had this great first class, whatever, or the state class or king class room, and he was at the, yeah. at the last moment, he actually bailed, and somebody else got the room, you know? So, there you uh, go. Sliding doors. Lots of luck. Yeah. <laughs> Sliding doors and lots of luck. You need some luck, hey? Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, let's move on from, from the market for a second, or at least from the stock market. Let's move to something we don't talk about very often, which is resources. And let's talk about the oil price because we set some records this week. I think it was Monday night or Tuesday night. 
The futures for West Texas Intermediate, I'll go to that in a little bit, oil went negative. Not only a little bit negative, they went very, very negative. I want to say 30-something dollars a barrel at one point, Doctor. Do I get that right? Yeah. Um, they, they, and this is when I say negative, literally, if you owned a futures contract, you were paying somebody $30 a barrel to take your oil. <laughs> they weren't buying it. You weren't giving it away for free. You were literally paying someone... I don't know about you, Matt, but I'm not going to come to work and pay my boss to, to work as much as I love the Motley Fool. I'd almost do it for free, don't, don't tell Bruce, but I don't reckon I'd pay to do this job, I have to say. I don't think I'd pay to do any job. And yet, if you've got a barrel of oil, you are literally saying, can you please, for the love of God, here's 30 bucks, take it off my hands. So that was the first thing. Then overnight, uh, was Wednesday, Tuesday night, we saw the price of Brent crude. So West Texas to me is American oil. Brent crude is the international oil benchmark. Fell to the lowest point this century. Back to levels not seen since 1999. Oil is in some trouble. Now, we'll talk about futures in a second, mate, but just give us a, your view on the, the, the what's driving oil prices generally lower in this pandemic environment. Well, like, you know, a couple of interesting things with oil. Like, I mean, the, the obvious things that are actually driving oil in many ways, right? I mean, so oil price depends on supply and demand, right? There's mm-hmm. enough supply and demand has all of a sudden evaporated. Mm. Right. And uh, if demand evaporates, there's basically a glut of oil and that is basically driving prices down. Right. I mean, there's no, basically there are no buyers of oil. And the, 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 the funny thing with oil is that, you know, or rather the funny thing with most of the things we consume is the world is basically optimized in a supply chain fashion, right? You know, it's like toilet papers, right? You know, how are we running out of toilet papers? <laughs> We're running out of toilet papers because they're basically produced on demand. Mm-hmm. Right, roughly, there's only so much storage. The same thing with oil. There's only so much storage. Well, once these storages are filled, filled, I mean, you know, all that oil that is being pumped out, what do you do with it? So, you know, that there's no demand for that oil. So, I think that's really what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. If I had a, a big, uh, you know, tanker, a virtual tanker, I would be just filling up <laughs> that with, with oil right now, and just <laughs> waiting for demand to come back. But I don't have uh, that. And I think, you know, even I, I heard the, the energy minister saying that you know we're going to have to build a strategic reserve. The problem is, if you start building a strategic reserve now, by the time you build it, the oil price will be back. (laughs) You need to have the big hole in which you're going to fill it right now. (laughs) So that's what's happening. Basically, demand has evaporated because, you know, well, we're all stuck at home. I think that's the thing too, it's really fascinating with oil in particular, and even toilet paper, as you say, the it doesn't have to change by that much for the price to change really significantly, right? There is, a, and the supply chain point you make, I, I want to draw that out a little bit further because the, the point you make, it wasn't what I was thinking about, but, you know, if oil drops in demand by 3%, 4%, that's enough to see the price absolutely crater, so finely tuned. And frankly, it's done that because like toilet paper, the amount of oil demanded over a month or a year or a couple of years is so incredibly stable normally that the supply chain is optimized so fantastically that, it doesn't need, or usually doesn't need that much finessing, right? Because there's, you know, the number of cars on the road aren't going to change dramatically normally. The number of ships transporting cargo aren't going to change dramatically normally. The number of planes in the air aren't going to change dramatically normally. And so you can kind of draw a reasonably straight line. In fact, demand has been a reasonably straight line. If you're in that business, you, it, it makes perfect sense to assume that straight line continues on because why wouldn't it? Now, we know the answer in hindsight, um, but that, that's exactly what's going on. And that's that's, a, I think, you know, there's, a, there's an economic lesson, there's a public policy lesson, quite frankly, whether it's ventilators or oil reserves or anything else. I think, you know, we, we learned the, the old, remember the old Japanese management, when I was at uni, we learned about just-in-time management. And the big revolution yeah. from the Japanese through the 70s and 80s, I want to say, Doc, if you correct me on the timing if I'm wrong, was that just-in-time management idea, which is, they, they look clearly, well, hang on, rather than buying a whole lot of steel and, and putting it in a, in a warehouse and then using it to make the cars over the next six or 12 months, they worked out that if you could actually just buy the steel a couple of days before you needed it, if you could streamline your production processes so you could basically run your inventory, say, well, okay, I need one steering wheel, four tires, a couple of car seats and some steel on Tuesday, and I'll make the car on Wednesday. As long as you knew your suppliers could deliver it, it was a perfect idea. It kept costs really, really low. And that was a key part of the Japanese resurgence in manufacturing in general and car making in particular until it wasn't. And, and frankly, that was, it took you know 50 years almost to happen. But we've kind of learned as a society to assume that while everything is normal, you don't need redundancy in the system. This, if nothing else, has shown us that right across the board, whether it's cash, whether it's inventory, whether it's ventilators, whether it's capacity in hospital beds, redundancy is really super inefficient 
until you need it, in which case it's incredibly, incredibly valuable. Absolutely, yeah. The, the lean just-in-time stuff doesn't work when you have pandemics or, you know, when, when the system basically becomes, you know, uh, imbalanced, right? And that's right, what we right, really right. have right now. So, yeah. It's I, a hard one, right? Like it's, it, it's a really big public policy and frankly company policy question of how you deal with pandemics, how you deal with the chance of disruption. It happens once every 50 years. What's the cost of the other 49 years versus the benefit in that one year? And, and that's a really interesting conversation that's going to be happening across you know, cabinet tables, boardrooms, you know, right around the world in the next kind of couple of years once we get through this is how do you position your business, your society, your health system, your whatever for those scenarios? Do you plan everything for the once in the 50-year, 100-year problems? Or do you say, well, we're going to have to just cop that when it happens because the cost of that for the other 49 years, the other 99 years is way too much to carry. I don't have a strong view on how we enter that, uh, exit that, I should say, other than, and you've said it, made this point before, I'm not sure about on the podcast, but diversification is one answer, right? Now, globally, they're probably, you know, it's hard to diversify across, away from the globe. Maybe when Elon takes us to Mars, we can diversify uh, planetarily. Uh, but at least to some degree, having a diverse set of suppliers, a diverse set of customers, um, having some redundancy on hand, there's going to be some really interesting decisions made around that. Absolutely, yeah. I don't have very many thoughts on that. Like, I mean, like, I guess what we tell individuals, right, you know, have, have a rainy day fund cushion. I guess that's sort of a thing that companies can also have some rainy day right. fund cushion. How much is that? You know, is it six months or a year or eight months? You know, that's again, I guess, depends mm-hmm. on individual businesses and type of businesses and so on. Um, so, I mean, there is a cash cushion component and then there is a redundancy uh, yeah. component, which is really physical infrastructure, right? And, you know, running extra hospital beds, uh, yeah. having extra ventilators that are going to basically sit around and basically become old. Maybe uh, never be used, and, right? Thrown out in five years, 10 years, 20 years. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that that is really a societal uh, mm. benefit, cost, benefit issue, right? That's really hard. I'm happy I don't have to make those decisions, right? <laughs> uh, somebody else's yeah. problem. Uh, but it's just really, that. that is really hard, I think. You know, mm. the financial aspect, I think, is a little bit easier because you could say, well, you know, like if we tell individuals to have six months of cushion, then mm. maybe, you know, corporations can have six months of cushion too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, six to eight months of cushion. But, I mean, yeah, the other yeah. stuff is really, really hard, I think. It's a funny one, you know, we, we say in, in investing that in the good times, companies are on earnings and in the bad times they're valued on assets i kind of feel like from a political and policy perspective in the good times people want to focus on waste and in the bad times people want to focus on redundancy and they are by definition mutually not exclusive necessarily but they're kind of that right like you can imagine the political grief about you throw away how many billion dollars worth of ventilators you throw away in the last 25 years would be the you know in 2019 someone's complaining about all this waste of money on ventilators you know in 2020 yeah. we're saying why they're not more what you know why they're not more ventilators um we're we're, we're not as a society, mate, we can often not be that, I won't say that bright, but we're probably not that thoughtful about maybe the second order impacts or the bigger issue. I mean, it's investing 101, right? We know that people want to spend their money today, don't want to save it for tomorrow. That's kind of the same story at some level, like the, the human inability to look forward far enough to allow for those things, the, the one-offs, the, um, you know, the, the black swans effectively. The, we, we, the book was written in 2008, eight nine. We should have known kind of, or at least been prepared for that. We, we forgot pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's all pretty true. I mean, at the same time, though, what I would say is that the, the, the silver lining, I think we talked about this last, last week, right, is because the GFC happened, we're sort of better off mm-hmm. this time. Had this hit without the GFC, you know, I don't think policymakers oh, would have any clue no. of actually what to do, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there is, of course, the risk of overstimulation and things like that. But I would almost bet that, you know, people would actually be at the drawing boards trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> yes, right? yeah, that's and, right. And so I think, you know, in a way, it's not all lost. I mean, there, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died, you know, globally. So, I mean, that, that is definitely a yeah. big, like, you know, human loss. But I think yeah. in terms of our policy response, at least economically, I feel that, you know, most countries are on the same page, right? They're all basically doing the same thing, throwing about 10, 12, 15% of the GDP uh, effectively towards stimulation and basically saying, we got to do just everything we can. Uh, otherwise, our modern society basically comes to a grinding halt, right? I so yeah. uh, I, I think that's the, I, I think that is the bright side, you know, the bright side of what has happened. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Oh, so I was going to quickly talk about futures, mate, just without boring people, but just the uh, just to give me a heads up. So the, the, the fact that oil can go negative and get people get paid for it, it's basically a version of, as you said, the, the lack of storage. But in this case, it's a really specific lack of storage because 
here's the thing that happens with futures. Our futures contract is an agreement by somebody to take a volume of something at a future date. And it kind of has a really good, solid, fundamental underpinning, right? When you're a farmer and you, you, you're going to produce X, what do you measure wheat in? Is it tons of wheat? I think it is. Tons of wheat. My apologies That's to our right. farmer listeners. Someone will, someone will hit me up on Twitter and call me an idiot and probably fair enough. Uh, you, you knew you were going to produce a certain number, a certain amount of wheat, right? You need that certainty. You're going to have to buy the wheat, plant the wheat, water it, crop it, you know, get it to market. And that was super uncertain. And so someone at one point said, you know what, if you could do a deal with, let's say, Kellogg's as, as, the, as the, uh, the, the cornflakes and wheat mix makers, or sanitarium, I suppose, um, you, you say, look, I'll tell you what, how about you give me a guarantee you'll take this wheat at a given price in three months' time when the crop's ready. And it made perfect sense, right, because it gave the farmer certainty, it gave the, the customer certainty, uh, they gave both price and volume, so they kind of knew, each knew what was going to happen. And that's a really sensible, smart thing. Now, I've ranted about, uh, about derivatives before. Uh, and I, as you know, Doc, would cancel or, or, or uh, outlaw most derivatives, uh, particularly for non-financial things. But in this case, that made some sense. Now, it, when it comes to oil, the same kind of thing happens, same exact trade, right? If you're, let's, let's just arbitrarily pick some stuff. If you're Caltex and you need to sell some petrol uh, and you're ExxonMobil and you're drilling for oil, some sort of deal between the two with some middlemen made some sense because Exxon knew how much to drill and knew what price they'd get so they can work out whether it was profitable to drill. Again, that all makes some some sense. As Alice shouldn't be surprised. Good old, uh, good old financial types get in the way and try and make a buck on the on the trade. And so there's a whole lot of spreadsheet jockeys who got in on that, and they said, you know what? We're going to buy those oil futures and try and make some money on them. We're going to try and buy them now and sell them later for a higher price because we're geniuses and we're going to we're going to make some money doing that. Which all makes sense, except when the demand for oil drops. If you're a spreadsheet jockey and you own all those oil futures, if you don't sell them to somebody, you've got to take delivery of the oil. Now, I don't know too many Wall Street investment banks or, uh, or, or Bridge Street investment or commercial banks here in Australia, for example, who can actually take containers and containers and <laughs> ships of oil and put them somewhere. You can't sort of put them in the, in the um, you can't put them in the basement. You can't kind of fill your, your swimming pools with it. Um, you've got to do something with it, right? Now, they, don't, they know they can't take delivery of that because uh, there's no market for it. They can't store it. And so that's when we get into the situation where they're selling desperately these futures to get them off their books before they have to take delivery. And that exacerbates that supply-demand problem we talked about before. Ordinarily, if the price was negative, you simply wouldn't produce any oil and everything would be okay. But the production's contracted. The futures contract specifically says, I will find a home for this oil when you've got it ready. Now, in hindsight, no one would have made that deal, at least at those volumes. But that's kind of what's happened here. It is literally the, the financialization of this product has caused some grief. And, and I would say probably maybe you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I'm not sure. Um, but caused some grief for those people who wanted to trade the financial instrument and forgot or didn't realize or didn't put enough store in the fact that they actually might get stuck with the oil if things went badly. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I, I think the, the interesting thing with the, the W2I, the, 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 the West Texas, West Texas intermediate, intermediate. Yeah. intermediate that you're talking about, is the, so just like the grain futures, right? The, in the grain futures, you actually, uh, when, you, when, you, when you write the futures, there's actual physical transaction of the right. grains that happen at a, big granary somewhere, right? Yeah, the same yeah. thing actually happens with oil. Uh, in this particular case, the physical transaction, you know, if it needs to happen, if it needs to be stored, it is stored at a place called um, Cushing in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. okay. So there is a physical storage where, yeah. you know, you can actually store the oil for some period of time. Yeah. The, the, the problem that has happened is because of the pandemic, that storage is apparently 70, 80% full. <laughs> so there's no space. So there's the yeah. real, I, I mean, I'm technically the reason the oil is negative is there's actually no physical space mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for that oil to be stored right now because right. I think the the storage at Cushing, Oklahoma, has basically said we are not taking any more oil <laughs> <laughs> because we project we'll be full in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. So uh, th that's where the negative pricing is coming from. So I, I mean, you know, in a way, the people who are actually going to make some money off this is really the um, the producers, right? Because the oh, producers yeah. are, and the and the derivative guys in the middle, because the producers have got contracted prices at which they're supposed yeah. to sell. And that's what it's <laughs> about, right? That's exactly what the futures are for. Yeah, and they would be shutting down their plants mm -hmm. to right now to actually not produce. So they would actually not produce oil <laughs> because they know they don't have to deliver oil, or, or they yeah. have some oil sitting in some tankers. And um, so the guys who own the contract who are obliged to actually take delivery, and they can't take delivery. They have to pay. So that, you know, I think that's the, yeah, this has actually never happened uh, in the yeah. past. So there's always a new thing that can happen. It occurs to me, mate, that hopefully it never gets to this, but 
at some point, the pricing could get to the situation where you actually had, you know, people being paid to actually burn the oil just to get rid of it because it's cheaper than having to try and find somewhere for it where there's nothing, to, there's literally nowhere to put it. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you literally have to pay money and take delivery and you can't take delivery because you can't put it anywhere, you're either going to give money for nothing or you take delivery maybe, I don't know, I mean, I, again, it, it sounds stupid and I hope it never happens, but you can see planes being put in the air just to burn up the oil just to get rid of this stuff so that there's somewhere, something, you know, literally so you've got somewhere to put it because someone's going to say to you, you must take this oil. I've produced it. You must take it. If you've got nowhere to put it, what else do you do? You, you, you must burn it or find, somehow find space for it by forcing someone else to take the oil or incentivizing them, which again is why things are negative because they're trying to find places to put the oil. People who want the oil who can use it. I don't know about the sale of jerry cans or oil drums, but I reckon they're probably going through the roof right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, what I'm hoping is that basically production um, is turned off, right? And it, it looks yeah. like uh, it, part of the other problem was that the, the, the cartel deal, I'm using the term cartel here, uh, the cartel deal that was done between the US and the yeah. OPEC and Russians, that was supposed to start the cutoff in May, right? Uh, and that is just too late. Uh, in terms, because there's just this glut of supply that exists, right? So I think there's some talk of bringing that forward. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. I, I mean, if you're an oil producer right now, it makes no sense to produce oil that nobody needs, right? Correct. Correct. So it's, and it's a finite resource. Why would you actually pump it out yes. when nobody needs it? So that's why future, future prices out past the negatives will also be low because effectively the market's disincentivizing production and saying, hey, yeah. because we know we've got so much, we didn't know that when we did the June futures, that's why they're negative, because we've kind of got ourselves in a pickle. But the new futures that are being written from scratch now, people looking at that oversupply and saying, well, I'm not going to pay anything for that oil, or I'm going to pay almost nothing for it. And, and that will yeah. impact the actual prices in June, July, August, once they get through this, yeah. because they'll know there's already, as you say, the storage is already full, no one needs the oil. And so it, it, lower prices do what they're supposed to do, which is disincentivize supply. Yeah, and it's the May futures which are negative. And I think like yeah. the August or whatever futures are okay. They're positive yes. because, you know, people believe that there's going to be need for oil at that time. So Correct, correct. What do we know? All right, mate, let's move on from oil, the longest we've oil, I think, in the history of this podcast, but hopefully a fun conversation for our listeners. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Okay, let's get on to what I've, I, I like this term, mate. The great retail rental rumble. I made that up because it sounded good and it was, uh, it was all very nice. We are in really, well, I was going to say we're in really strange economic times as if it was new news. It's not new news. We, all, we know full well we're in tough economic times. It's impacting everybody and there's a really fascinating, and I say that because I'm neither a landlord nor a tenant, a fascinating game being played out now between retail tenants and their retail landlords. Now, the, the, the most obvious one here was Solomon Lou. He's been for years complaining about the rents being charged by retail landlords. They closed some stores in even some high profile locations just said, look, we can't make money at these rents. You guys are overcharging us. So that's kind of the background. So Solly's kind of nailed those colors to the mast already. Coming into this, he said publicly now, Premier, who Premier runs uh, Smiggle, Peter Alexander, JJ's, Dodd, Just Jeans. He's basically said, look, Premier's not going to pay rent until this, everything reopens. Now, I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a, there's a good contract saying that they have to pay rent. Uh, Super Retail, only this morning has come out, I think it was this morning, maybe yesterday afternoon, come out and said effectively the same thing. We're not paying rent till November. And again, you've got to figure at some level, some landlord's got a contract that says you must pay rent between X and Y date. Um, we're all we're all being asked to take some pain. We're all being asked to, in different ways, share in the cost, even if it's just because the government budget will be in massive, massive deficit for probably a decade getting out of this. Retail landlords have a right to, at some level to expect to get paid for the space they agreed in good faith to let to somebody else. If they don't get paid, then maybe they can't pay the banks or they can't pay their shareholders, certainly. There is a big, big rumble coming. I don't know how this ends, mate. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I have multiple thoughts. So, so yeah, so you're talking about the flow-on effects, right? Basically, um, you know, retail, uh, the retail property, like the mall, for example, that's got a chunk of debt on it. That debt needs to be right. serviced. That debt is with the bank. The bank needs that, uh, that money coming in. Otherwise, it can't pay its dividends. doesn't have income, right? Um, you know, and, and therefore, there's, there's a flow-on the effect. Pipe, yeah? yeah, effectively, you know, you, it can destabilize the entire system because, you know, right. there's no cash flowing through. Now, you know, like I get it, 
here's my here's my problem with the the retailers at this point. I get it that they have a problem, right? And I think I read somewhere that one of the retailer retail chains is saying that oh, you know, I'm going to only pay you X percentage of my mm. sales because that's mm. what I'm going to get. If I'm a landlord, I'd say that's fine, provided for the next two years you're going to pay me some Y percentage of your sales. <laughs> right, right, right. Right? You just can't have it. Like right now, you can't just have it this way, right? I mean, you know, from the retailer's point of view, I mean, I would say that, hey, why didn't you buy, run your business so that you can actually afford some slack? That's your right. fault. When right. in the good day, you took the money and you basically gave it away all to shareholders, well, now shares got, then shareholders got to pay now, right? Mm-hmm. If they want those businesses to sustain, they got to pay. So I think, you know, I think it's just disingenuous of them to basically, and I'm calling out Solomon Louis here too, it's disingenuous to basically say, I'm not going to pay, mm-hmm. right? Because if everybody says, I'm not going to pay, well, then, you know, we might just become an egalitarian society in that sense and say, nobody's going to pay anyone anything. Let's see how the society works. That's uh, the thing, right? So, like, the contract's got to be worth something. Like, I, I, yeah. even, if you, even if you agree that, the landlord should do something and maybe will do something at a very basic yeah. level. I, I don't think we can, as a society, how, how do you, how do we operate when the contracts are contracts unless someone doesn't want to hold, hold their end of the bargain? Yeah. So I, I think I, absolutely they should renegotiate because it's a nobody's interest. I get that part. Like that part I think is fine. Like it's like, it's the same thing I would say at the residential level too, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm a renter and I can't pay, it's not in the interest of the landlord to throw me out. Right. right? And it's in my interest to stay in, but then we need to, arrive at an arrangement that's fair to both parties, right? Okay. And so, uh, so I think this, this thing that they're basically right now, it appears to me that they're taking this option where, okay, we're just going to use this as a bargaining tool. Um, you know, that, that to me, mm. uh, so, you know, like I could stretch it further and say, hey, can I go and buy a jeans now that I will have less money? So I'm going to only pay you less right now. That's right. I, I mean, it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, can I go and tell the coffee shop that I will not pay you four and a half bucks or five bucks for my mocha? I'm only yeah. going to pay two bucks. Yeah. You take it. You know, that, that's just, I think, I, I think it's, it's a pushing it, but I, I, I believe that they should be renegotiating the terms. But, you know, if somebody's saying, I want to pay you 5% of my sales, uh, then I'd say, fine, please pay me 5% of your sales. And please audit me that I need to, you know, that sales need to be audited yeah, too, yeah. right? I mean, Absolutely. you know, is it 5% of overall group or is it 5% of the store? What is it? Uh, right. So I think it's a little bit of a, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not very happy with how that is happening, actually. I mean, I think, I think that's the problem. Again, it's, you know, it's both that the fairness element and the flow element. I think, you know, if we, if we believe we want to live in a, I mean, property rights fundamentally, which is effectively contract law, is what underpin has underpinned, the, the growth of capitalism, from the, if you've done any economic history, from the very, very earliest days, it is property rights that has given people security of title, which lets them do things like that mortgages, like, you know, invest. I mean, those, the extension of that is then contract law. If you then start to say, well, contracts are only contracts if we all want them to be, we can, uh, one party just not stop, you know, imagine if you go to the bank and said, look, I was going to pay back my credit card or my, my mortgage, but I lost my job. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just not going to pay. I mean, you know, at some point the bank's going to go, I appreciate that, but you kind of have to. No, no, I just don't want to. Let's renegotiate. How about I only pay you half of my, my mortgage back? Uh, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just not yeah. sustainable. I think it's fine. And I don't even, you know, I, don't, I, feel, I feel for the retailers who are in, you know, a situation they didn't put themselves in and frankly no one foresaw six months ago. I feel sorry for the landlords who are, you know, trying to, again, in, in, in good faith, have done deals to expect they would be paid back. And so, you know, if you're, if you're vacant, that's a different question. But if you still got a tenant you're entitled to expect they're going to pay the bills. So I get we're all in, all in different circumstances. It just strikes me as, I don't know how they justify it. Look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a premier investments fan. It's a recommendation of ours. as a super retail. Um, I like those companies. I like what they're doing. They've, they've done fantastic to build the brands. Other services of ours have um, some of the uh, some landlords as, as tenants, right? So we're, we're on both sides of this deal here. But it just strikes me that you can't expect to change the rules when they don't suit you, even if these are unusual circumstances. Yeah, actually, the, the point you made about contract law, I think I'll, I'll, I'll highlight something there. I think that is really, really important, right? That is, you know, for, uh, for a developed economy, mm. the contract law is probably the single most important thing, right? It is the rule of the law that says that, you know, you're going to get paid, which is why we have investment money, investment flowing in from the outside to inside, right? Mm. And a lot mm. of our wealth actually comes that way. Right? So in a, in a way, you know, the society actually overall benefits by ensuring 
that the contract law is upheld, right? Why do overseas investors want to buy residential properties or, uh, you know, have a stake in a big mall or actually to build, build a mall here? Because they believe that their money is secure and that they're going to get paid back, right? Fundamentally altering that is actually like, it's a big step backwards, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, renegotiate, absolutely. But, you know, like, I mean, this could become a scary precedent and I hope it doesn't get there. That, that's my that's my big issue. I think that the, the precedent. I don't, I don't really care about who wins with the retail situation. What what scares me, as you say, is that is that very precedent. But let's let's move on. Um, speaking of speaking of you know everyone having to take some sort of pain in this one. Afterpay has it was an interesting headline in, in, in the fin this morning. Again, we're doing this on on um, on Thursday. The headline was pressure built on Afterpay to join Team Australia, and, and to some degree, this is echoing what happened in the UK where. The financial regulators are uh, pressuring, making, uh, regulating to, uh, you know, for some payment providers to basically give their customers repayment holidays. And the banks here in Australia, particularly mortgages, have given people on application repayment holidays of three to six months. And sometimes it's a repayment holiday, the interest still accrues. In other cases, the interest is not going to accrue. So, you know, lots of moving parts here. And if you are, by the way, a listener and you impacted, Please, if you, if you have lost your job or you feel like you're under some sort of financial stress, you really, really need to go to your bank now. Don't wait. Don't kind of put your head in the sand. Don't hope things will get better. You really, really desperately, please, need to go to your bank now and say, hey, my circumstances have changed. Can we please have a chat about what options are available to me before you get yourself into dire straits? Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The afterpay story here, so the banks have done that. Afterpay, as yet, hasn't come to the party with the same sort of deal. And there has now been kind of that, that you know, the, the jawbone, the old Glenn Stevens line, uh, a bit of kind of non-specific, non-legal pressure being applied now to Afterpay and other buy now, pay later providers to provide the same sort of repayment holidays as, as their bigger bank brethren. There's more alliteration. I'm on fire today, Doc. Um, your, your thoughts on, on whether Afterpay should be involved they have to do the same thing and then and then from that i guess you know as a as a as a stock as a company what does it do to afterpay's business if they are forced to or simply choose to because they feel like they need to which is kind of being forced but in a, in a very different way they feel like they need to come to the party yeah so i think yeah so that's a good point like i'll, I'll start i'll actually do a little bit of a segue to a different thing first so one of the things to keep in mind is to think about the customer profile right of uh, of afterpay like okay so let's assume if afterpay is profile has of customers have been affected by job losses. A lot of those people probably are now being supported by say something like a job keeper or a job seeker, right? Mm-hmm. Which effectively for, for that group is covering your payments at sort of the medium payment point, right? In, a, in other words, many people are actually being made whole by the government, right? Mm-hmm. So if the government is making many people whole, if those people have no other obligations, but afterpay obligations, the only thing I worry about is I think if you create an incentive process where the incentive is to defer or to not pay, then that is a, exactly as we discussed just like, just like contract law, it creates a precedence, right? I would say that if people are able to pay them, they should absolutely be paid, mm-hmm. right? Because if something has not fundamentally changed in terms of, you know, the amount of money that you are making and therefore you can pay, just because everybody else can get, uh, you know, just because there's an option for a payment holiday, don't take it. Right. That's, right. that's just not, just not good. Uh, at the same time, I do believe that, you know, it's in afterpay's interest that if there are consumers who can't pay, then, you know, it needs to come up with some sort of arrangement with, with those consumers or its customers really, because it, mm. you know, it's in, in afterpay's interest. It's in the consumer's interest. It's in everybody's interest. Right. So, yeah. you know, work out, you know, like, you know, if your payments were going to happen over the next say six weeks or four weeks or whatever it is, stretch them out, for example, as an example, right? You know, you can make them longer. Um, so I think that's, uh, that. I think I'm not a fan of forcing businesses to do things. I think I'm a fan of like nudging them to do the right thing, right? If you, if you <laughs> nudge them to do the right thing, I, th- I think then uh, as a group, I think they're all, uh, because the human tendency is, is always to, you know, like if, if you get a payment, it's just with the bank's mortgages too, right? If you can get a payment holiday, mm. well, if your neighbor is getting a payment holiday, you might feel like, well, why shouldn't I get a payment right, holiday? Exactly. Well, I can yeah, get the money, yeah. right? But the payment holiday effectively means that if the interest is accruing, you're going to be paying yeah. more interest yeah. and you're going to be paying it for longer. 
it, it is in nobody's interest to do that. So I think, again, there's this, a little bit of this dichotomy of, you know, what is happening in the short term and what's happening in the long term. Yeah. And I'd like, you know, people not to lose, you know, it's, it's good to not lose sight of that. You know, we are what we are because mm-hmm. of sort of certain decisions and certain contract laws and certain things that we have done over a long period of time. And, right. and I think it's, it's good to stick to that. You know, I'm not saying if you're in trouble, absolutely. So I would say that, you know, if you're in trouble, can't pay, should get in touch with Afterpay and see, you know, because there are late fees that accumulate. Afterpay does not charge interest. So that, I mean, this, the other thing is, is the Afterpay's product does not have interest accumulation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so the question really is you can, if you can decide not to pay, but then there's late fee accumulating, maybe the only thing that you need to negotiate then is how much is the late fee that's accumulating, right? So Afterpay is not going to charge you interest, but it's not an interest bearing product. So I think Afterpay should be thinking about it. If they are not already thinking about it, that's my view, because again, it's in everybody's interest to think about it. Um, but, but I think I don't group them in the same category, largely because there's no interest involved. And if there's no interest involved, then, um, you know, what are you really deferring, right? You, if you defer payments, like the banks are, are basically counting on effectively getting that interest at a future date. And in, if, yeah. in, in interest yeah. in most, in my assumption is interest in most cases is actually accumulating, right? It's the same story with rent too, right? If you don't pay the rent, what is accumulating? <laughs> is it just the rent or is it the interest is there, you know, uh, how is it being calculated? So I think that's a, it's a little bit of a um, interesting zone. And yeah, so, so yeah, I think they should, you know, back with consumers is what I feel, but I would not group them in the same group largely because of this distinction of interest versus no interest. Um, in terms of the product, so here's the interesting thing with after this last report basically said there was a huge pickup in the business did not slow down. That's because Afterpay has a, has a big online component, right? And while offline sales have stopped, online sales have been booming. So the business was not affected. Uh, with that said, I mean, ultimately it is consumer discretionary largely, right? So in, in an economic slowdown, consumer discretionary does take a hit, so I do expect it to take a hit. That said, what you know, and, and Afterpay is, is a recommendation in, in, in one of our services that, that I run. Um, what what I think I like to point out to people is a company like Afterpay, for example, is valued for growth. Right? It's a growth company, and the interesting thing with growth is growth is also a function of the base at which you're growing from. So if you're growing from a small base, getting like a large growth is easier. Versus if you you know if you're like Apple and you sell iPhones to everyone. Well, how do you grow that? Because to grow from a humongous base where, you know, you're, you're, if, you're, if, you're like, if your sales are like 300 billion, growing from that is really, really hard. Yeah. Versus if your sales are like 1 billion, growing from that is comparatively easier. So, so that's the thing I point out with Afterpay is that when you have greenfield opportunities, um, you know, you have many retailers that you have not signed up, many people that, you know, online that haven't yet come on to the Afterpay bandwagon. Mm. Um, the growth optionality is still there. The growth will slow. You know, it's likely not to go negative, whereas for an established player, it's probably going to go negative, right? So, uh, you know, and those are the things. So there's a value, absolute evaluation question involved. If you're looking for growth, it's probably going to be still there. <laughs> That's yeah, my guess. Right. Well, how, do you, how are you feeling about Afterpay in, the, in an environment where their sales are growing, but the credit worthiness of the average Australian consumer is falling? And I don't, I don't want to necessarily do a one-for-one comparison there, but in the extent, to the extent that... If, if, you're, if you're selling something online and you're getting the cash today, if you're the retail that Afterpay uh, supports, you're pretty happy, right? Because you're getting the growth and some money's going straight in the back pocket. You're pretty happy and then Afterpay can deal with the collection. At some level, growing sales would be great, but if you know that the average Australian consumer is worse off because there's going to be less money coming in, there's going to be larger unemployment, there's going to be more mortgage or other stresses around, are you feeling okay about the creditworthiness of the deals Afterpay is doing with its customers given A, the general kind of malaise, but also B, the pressure they might be under if, if those late fees are deferred or, or cancelled, if that's the pressure they come under or that decision they make, um, growing, your, growing your receivables, in other words, the money that people owe you in a market where you're being pressured not to charge late fees and or the consumer is less likely to be able to pay you back, is it, is it potentially getting larger at exactly the wrong time when you've got that kind of credit risk getting larger as well? Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting question. Again, I think it goes back to sort of the customer profile. Right. So is it the same customer profile that is highly indebted uh, in the society? Yeah, that's really the question, right? Is it, mm. so a large number of afterpay consumers, for example, do not pay back by a credit card, they pay back mm. by a 
direct debit, right? Um, the, the, the customer profile is, you know, it, it's skewed towards a younger population. So it, you know, again, without knowing what individual debt profiles are, right, it is yeah, hard to yeah. make it, you know, but it is, it is serving a population which is different from the population which is, you know, used to using credit cards and, you know, um, you know potentially has huge debt and so on. So maybe, maybe the customer profile is the one that, you know, um, it, it's still earning. And, you know, it's basically just using Afterpay. Like Afterpay's claim has always been that Afterpay is basically a, uh, a cash flow management tool, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, whereas it's not a debt tool in the sense that you're not, you're not taking, you're not taking a 30 year old mortgage, right? Then, you know, you're probably refinancing it again because the property price has gone up and things like that. Yeah. It's really a different, um, a different setup. So it, it is really a cash flow management tool. So, yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting. Again, we are watching closely the numbers to mm-hmm. see uh, what's, uh, how, for example, the late, what, what is the late fee uh, accumulation, for example, you know, has, are the late fees going up? Are the, you know, are there payments, are the people who are fall, going to fall behind uh, in payments? It, like any other, it, it's ultimately in, in some form a, a credit product, right? So in, in, in credit products have a hard time um, when consumers are, not able to spend. So, right, right. you know, uh, and in a, typically in the recession, in a contraction environment, recession environment, credit products are, are the best products to, um, to be looking at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, again, I, you know, it depends on how well the, you know, their internal algorithms work in terms of figuring out whether or not their customers are paying. The one advantage Afterpay really has is if, if people are missing payments, it can stop at that point, giving them further loans, yeah, yeah. right? So the the process of reaction process is further, it's, it's very quick, right? A bank can't do that. A bank has lent out a million dollars to someone and then they refuse to pay. Well, it's basically stuck with that million dollar loan at that point, mm-hmm. uh, right? Whereas here, it's basically lending people like, you know, a couple of hundred bucks yeah. uh, and, you know, and it actually takes the first payment almost instantaneously. So it's then, you know, left with say 150 bucks. And then, it, you know, it has this option, okay, well, this, this person is not paying. So therefore it can freeze that account, right? And work with the customer. So I think, you know, it's again, just because of the, the type of lending and, and sort of, you know, it's micro credit really. It's basically micro credit versus yeah, large right. credits, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, that affords it more nimbleness um, versus, you know, large credits, which can very quickly get into trouble. So, yeah, it's not the best environment. It's a very high-risk uh, company, in my opinion. But, you know, if it gets through this without mm. um, getting burned, I think it will be fine, right? Um, there's always that risk that it can get burned. Very good. Thank you, mate. That was a question we had from Dave, funnily enough. So we, we talked about it because of the headline, but Dave also asked us a question uh, I wanted to know about after. Hey, so Dave, hope that's answered your question. Doc's done a great job with that. Um, two things, mate, I want to add for what it's worth. Um, I I have said before, I think I think you agree. Um, I think credit, uh, the Afterpay should be regulated with Zip and others as a credit provider and, and under the same laws. I think it would actually be better for society, for the financial system, and frankly, for those companies themselves. It gives them effectively a kind of a, um, a barrier to entry for others, right? If you, if you choose to be more regulated, Facebook itself is kind of going the same path of, once you're big enough, you try and then be part of the rule setting rather than, rather than the kind of, you know, the rule making or the rule avoiding. Um, and that, and that, can be, that can be helpful as well. So I, I would argue for that. Whether they should give a payment holiday or not, I don't have a strong view. I think it would be not unreasonable to maybe waive late fees for a period of time for people who are getting in some sort of trouble. And as you say, hopefully they're going to do that proactively or at least accommodatingly for their customers. It's good for their business, good for their brand. The other thing I want to say is to that point, you made it at the very, very end, mate, which is lots of these companies are having short-term issues don't need to concern investors if those issues are genuinely short-term and the companies can make it through. You know, it's been such a long time since we had a recession. You've made that point before. People forget that, you know, that the likes of Harvey Norman, which maybe not are at the forefront these days of, of, of growth in their categories, but they became category killers by surviving a few recessions in a row. And the weaker parties fall by the wayside and the strong ones come out, even, even where they've got some, you know, some flesh wounds on the way through, they come out in a stronger position competitively and in a brand perspective. And so, as you say, if and when after he makes it through this one, either unscathed or, or with some sort of flesh wounds that it could at least learn from and deal with, the chances are that it'll be even stronger coming out than it went going in because it remains one of the alternatives. And, and in a market where you end up with contraction, 
the weaker ones go out of business or merge or get acquired, the strong ones tend to survive and they tend to thrive after that. There is something of a, a refining fire that you go through when you, you go through a recession like we're about to. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now let's get on to a mailbag. We've got time for one mailbag question, so let's do that because we love some mailbag. How about we do a mailbag podcast this Sunday though? What do you reckon? Yeah, let's do that. All right, so if you do want to get a question, not for this mailbag because we're going to record it after this one, but if you do want your question answered on a future normal podcast or a mailbag podcast, you can hit us up on anywhere, but particularly the socials. So let's give those for people who have a question. If you have a, a question or comments and feedback for the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Let's go with the let's go with Twitter first. That's one Doc is on. He hasn't yet caved, although we've got some hashtag get Doc on Insta uh, comments for you, mate, uh, maybe on, on Sunday's mailbag. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at Anirban Mahanti is Doc's Twitter handle. I'm at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Any of those three angles will get to us and we'll make sure we answer your question on the mailbag. Send us a direct message or flick us a tweet with our handle included and we'll make sure we get to that question. You can get a couple of us on Instagram, not Doc, but I'm on Instagram at TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool, similarly, like Twitter, is at The Motley Fool AU. And then if you're on Facebook, you can hit us up there and leave us a comment, send us a direct message. The Motley Fool Australia is our corporate page or I'm Scott Phillips Money. So any of those or all of those, and if you are allergic to the socials, or some of you are, I know, and that's okay, info at fool.com.au is our email address. So any of those, we'll make sure your questions get to us. We are at a stage, Doc, kind of nicely, but probably slightly disappointingly for some of our listeners, we actually can't get to every single question anymore. So we will answer the ones that are the best, most appropriate, most thoughtful ones we think have more impact for most of our listeners. Um, usually ones we haven't answered before in a little while too. So we're trying to avoid repetition for our listeners. Uh, but if you have a question, please send it through. We'd love to get to it. We get to almost all of them and maybe we will be able to get to all of them in future. But just to, just to set expectations, um, we'll answer as many as we possibly can in the time we're allotted uh, and see what we can do. All right, that out of the way, mate. Um, question from uh, Matthew on Instagram. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Recently started listening, oh, sorry, looking into investing and listening to the podcast. Excellent. Well done. I understand you can't give direct advice, and we can't, but wanted to know your general opinion on ASX code STW. Keep up the great work and hashtag get Doc on Insta. Sorry, Doc. Um, <laughs> we, uh, STW is mm-hmm. an index tracker. It's the iShares ASX 200 from memory. Did I get that right? Um, Absolutely right. Thank you. I get stuff right occasionally. Uh, not very often, but that's what you're here for, mate. Make sure you keep me on the straight and narrow. What's your opinion on, on a new investor investing into this particular iShares ASX 200 index tracking exchange traded fund? Okay. So I'm not at all a fan of the ASX 200. Um, oh, harsh. So here, here, yeah, well, here's the thing, right? <laughs> investing in ASX 200 basically means investing in the four big banks investing in a couple of miners, investing in maybe Telstra and, uh, you know, a couple of insurers and things like that, right? It is basically investing in everything that is economically challenged, that is not growing fast, and that's going to basically get, give you subpar growth, right? Uh, yeah, so you really need, oh, other than that, it's just fun. <laughs> so... so well, you know, here's the thing, right? Most of our, you know, stock picking that we do, we, you know, we we would pick sometimes stuff from ASX. I'm not saying the entire ASX 200 is like, you know, <laughs> is is untouchable. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying by weight, the index is weighted towards those things, right? The banks and the miners. Now, of course, there is CSL, but you know, you could also argue that CSL is expensive, right? So, all things considered, basically, what the index would give you is an exposure to stuff that we personally would invest in most of the time, right? There are, there are things in the ASX 200 which we'd invest in. Um, so, so it is not the best instrument for, in my view, for long-term uh, growth or even compounding, right? Um, so, yeah, I personally don't like that investment idea. Um, you, you know, I think people can do better than the ASX 200. If, if you need something really passive and you want to get, an index. The, the problem that people need to remember with the ASX overall is that it is very top heavy with the banks. The banks account for like 30%, 35%. Then there's like 10, 15% of miners. That is 40% of your market, right? 40% of market in 
uh, price takers and stuff that's not really growing fast, which is not really a good place to be. So if you really are trying to get into an index, then and you want an Australian index, then I would say the the VAS, I think, which is the Vanguard All Australian, mm. which is basically SX three hundred, which right. gives you a little bit more. It doesn't solve all the problems because it still has the the 200 in it, but it adds the next 100 to the smaller companies. It actually doesn't sort of the companies that we individually like to look at, right? Um, a lot of our services look at them. Um, so so that, that I think solves uh, that problem. And otherwise, you know, I point people to look at, you know, the, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100 as options because you get a little bit more diversity in the type of companies uh, that you're investing in. Um, of course, in those cases, you're taking some, some currency risk, but you know, you can invest on those tools right here on the ASX. Um, so yeah, so that, those were sort of my my ideas. Very nice, thank you. I, I'm um, I, I'm I'm similarly disposed to you. Um, I'm still not 100% sure I'm across my level of comfort given where the dollar is right now in those other two indices. So I absolutely own the Nasdaq ETF listed on the ASX. I own a global as VGS as the codes of Vanguard, rest of the world ETF. So I own those. I think there's a there's a price for them. I think they're attractively priced as individual assets. If I had US dollars right now, that might be different. I, I'm not 100% sure that I want to put a lot of money into those at the exclu- to the exclusion of local, given that currency at 80 cents, I'd have a very, very different perspective. At 63 cents, I'm just not entirely sure. Now, I'm no currency expert. I'm certainly no currency forecaster. It just the dollar being well below the long-term average just makes me think that I might be taking some currency risk that maybe I don't get paid back for relative to the two returns of the of the two indices. But again, I'm not either. Am I negative about it? I certainly own it, so I'm 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 kind of ambivalent, right? I think I think both is probably my preferred preferred answer rather than one or the other for exactly that reason. Um, I, I think we probably should do at some point, mate. Maybe next week. Maybe maybe later. A review of a couple of different options. So there's the STW Australian 200, which is the one we talked about. We were asked about. There's the Vanguard 300, which is another one. There's also two others. There's an equal weighted index, which is interesting because it that removes that kind of overweighting of the big banks and miners. And there's also a, a product called X2, X20, which is the ASX 200 without the top 20 stocks. And each of those is a, is a different way of looking at investing on the ASX in a, some sort of indexy kind of form, but each has its own pros and cons. So maybe we do that at a different time. I would say for what it's worth to Matthew, I think there's two questions here, mate. The first is, just what gets you started investing? And the second is what's the best investment asset? And I think it's probably likely that there are better options than STW to Doc's point, um, or at least there's some to add to that. That being said, at some level, I'd almost rather most people who are thinking about getting started investing actually doing something rather than nothing. So if, if it's STW or bust, then buy that. Even if you get some part of returns, you're getting something better than cash. You're getting started. You're getting on the way to investing. And that in itself has huge amounts of power in it. Um, if you put off investing for another three years, you know, it probably wouldn't matter which one you bought, you're still going to be worse off, right? The value of compounding for your long-term, particularly retirement savings, just just buy something. And if it's SCW, then, then go for that. Um, other than that, I doubt it's the best option. I agree with you, Doc. I think 300 beats the 200. Um, whether or not there's other equal or, or an index that excludes the top 20, which are there better, I, I'm going to have a look at that maybe this week and maybe we'll talk about that next week. What do you reckon? Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. That probably will do us for today, mate, but we will record a special mailbag episode as we tend to do. We kind of like that. So um, I won't be a huge surprise for people who are regular listeners. I will say, mate, actually, I want to share one thing very, very quickly as we finish. Um, we had a couple of questions. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not doing this to, to give you a hard time, mate, I promise. Um, but I got a couple of questions during the week for some reason our mailbag episodes aren't showing up in the Apple podcast app. Now, I don't know why that is. And I've sent a message to our Triple M uh, techies to try and get that sorted. I don't know if the problem is that Triple Triple M's end or Apple's end or something to do with the way the podcasts are downloading. They show up on the iTunes website, but they're not automatically downloading for some people to their podcast app. So we had a question during the week from uh, one particular listener. A second one came through only today, I think it was. Um, It was from Kath saying, hey, I'm loving the extra Sunday mailbags but am I the only one that doesn't have the episodes on my Apple podcast app? I've had to download other podcast platforms to keep up to date. So I don't know why that's happening. The money hacks are going up. The regular ones are going up for some reason. The Sunday ones aren't appearing. So our apologies for that. As I said, I don't know where the error or the issue is. If you are someone who loves our mailbag, and hopefully that's most of you, um, we, Daniel was the other person who had, a, who had a challenge with. He said, please don't make me listen, mow the lawn, 
to a Brene Brown podcast again. So I don't know Brene Brown, but it, uh, if, if that's your thing, uh, he's downloaded to tune in. So if you are someone, I don't want to bag the Apple podcast app. I'm sure it's great. It may well be a system issue or maybe the, the download settings are set up. But if you are looking for our Sunday mailbag and it doesn't appear, maybe just check out, maybe just for a week until we get this sorted somewhere or some shape or form, another podcast app so you can make sure you don't miss out on our mailbag Sunday goodness. Sorry about that, Doc. I'm disappointed. <laughs> can you speak to Tim Cook for us as our resident uh, Apple expert and uh, insider? Can you give Tim a call? Well, it's, never, it's, sort of for us? it's never Apple's fault, right? I mean, if all the other or other podcasts are coming, this is not coming. It's quite obvious. It's not Apple's fault. <laughs> it's somebody else's you fault. You don't have any tips, do you, as why they wouldn't be showing up? Is there a setting you know of? I'm not an Apple user. You are. Can you, I, I question without notice, well, probably, but is there anything you can think of? So maybe you need to subscribe to it, and that's why it probably doesn't get downloaded. But, you know, if it is showing up, if it shows up on the podcast store, yeah, then, yeah. then well, it's just a question of subscribing it, right? If it shows yeah, right. up on the podcast, so, yeah, so if it, yeah, I would blame it on uh, the way it has been set up <laughs> and not on Apple. I never okay. blame Apple. It's the best Exactly. Even when they're wrong, they're right, aren't they, Doc? No, they're always right. That's the thing. <laughs> And with that, that wraps us up. But before we go, don't forget, you can and should subscribe, maybe on Apple Podcasts, maybe something else, to the AAA Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Please leave us a review and tell your friends. We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. And of course, you can get an offer to Dividend Investor Plus. Subscribe to our regular emails. I sent one out this week. If you missed, if you haven't yet subscribed, you missed the story, let me just tell you, of my carpentry debacle. On, on the weekend. So there you go. You've missed out on that one, but you won't miss the next story. Uh, I'm building a chicken coop. So if you want to keep up to date on that with, with some investing angles from time to time, make sure you do go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you on Sunday with a special mailbag edition and some more foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.